Well, let me encourage you to turn to 1 Timothy, chapter 5. We're coming to the end of a a series on 1 Timothy, for those who are visiting today, and we get to chapter 5 this morning. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever." Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children and shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But if used to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them." Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudicing, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Well, um, that's uh, an unusual passage that we have to deal with this morning, so let's pray for God's help as we do so. Father, there are some passages of the Bible when we come to them that uh, we're kind of full of beans and excitement as to what you're going to say to us. And uh, this might not be one of them. And we pray that you would draw out from this passage stuff that is very helpful to us. I suspect stuff that is really significant as we reflect on what the principles underlying this are. Help us to concentrate, Lord. Help us to apply this well and carefully. And help us to do stuff if we're not doing it. And change stuff if we're doing it wrong. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
Now, just as folks uh, come back in, let me direct you to the notes on the service sheet. That'll help us. And also, just to say, if any of you are um, needing gluten-free communion bread, we couldn't get any today. Uh, one of the consequences of the snow. Just so that you know that the bread is not gluten-free, and that does affect one or two of you. So I apologize uh, for that. And also, happy anniversary. Today is one year. No, tomorrow is one year since we took occupation of this building. And uh, it doesn't seem like a year. So um, happy anniversary to us all. Now, um, with the notes and the Bible open, let's uh, plunge into this passage. The title I've given to the sermon is Godly Living in the Household of God. There are two main lines of teaching that run through this letter. One is godliness. Probably the most common theme that Paul addresses in this letter is godliness, Christ-likeness, in the leadership of the church and right through the whole church. Godliness impacts everything, from the public teaching in the church to the day-to-day -day practical family life of the church. Paul makes a big, big deal in this letter of godliness. And alongside that, the other main line is teaching about the household of God. The church is the household of God, the family of God. In other words, a local church like Chalmers is a local expression of the family of God. It's good to have folks here from Edinburgh North. Your church is shut because the school is shut. Uh, Edinburgh North, they meet in a school, we meet in a church building. They are, like us, a local expression of the family of God the household of God. And within a family, there are ties that mean we ought to care for one another, and that's important. Ought means you do it when you don't necessarily want to, but within a family, there are ties which mean we want to care for one another, and within a church family, there are ties. And strikingly, the, the ties that unite us in a church family, I think there's a strong argument biblically for the fact that these ties run deeper and are stronger than the ties that bind even the closest of families. Let me just uh, underscore that. The ties, the love ties, if you like, that mean that we ought to care for one another. And I, I mean just the people you're sitting beside. It's not a hypothetical thing. The, the people you are sitting beside, you ought to care for them and you should want to care for them with ties that are deeper and stronger than the ties that you have or equally strong as the ties that you have, I think this is right, to the person sitting beside you if they're your spouse. Now, that, I think that's right. And immediately you kind of pause and think, well, this passage, is it, how relevant is it to us? How strong are the ties within a church family? Are they so strong? I mean, we are children of God. We share a common inheritance. We look back to the cross as the place of our salvation. We have a fixed purpose in life. Jesus is our brother. God is our father. God has chosen to live in us by His Spirit. We are His temple. We are His household. Paul makes a great deal of godliness. Paul makes a great deal of the fact that we are the household of God. Two together, a great deal of godliness, a great deal of the fact that we are a family, and you have godly living in the family, godly living in the household of God. Now, 1 Timothy, I think uh, in all the letters we have studied, or Bible books we have studied as a church in my time, and that's nearly just over nine years, I think 1 Timothy has had the greatest and strongest effect on us. I think we think that it's had an effect on us because of the complex teaching on men and women in it. But it's not that at all. I think the stuff beyond that and in the back end of a letter is profoundly challenging to us. I think, for example, our elders as they meet 
fortnightly now on Wednesdays are really wrestling with what God is calling them to do. That's a good thing. I was writing to them last night to encourage them not to be disheartened as they look at their own lives, reminding them that they are jars of clay, just like their minister. Reminding them that the Apostle Paul said, what a wretched mess I am. That's real stuff. And godliness means that we love each other with bonds that are as strong, if not stronger, than the bonds that you have for those on earth you love the most. Now, of course, the challenge there is, I could say, oh, we're nothing like that at all. I want to encourage you that you are. I want to encourage you that over the past week, I've seen that in people's lives and in people's families, people being loved practically and in powerful ways as they need that. That hurts me, and I hope it heartens you. Now, let's uh, turn to the passage now. And, and verses 1 and 2, I've given them the heading. You'll see it on the sheet. Godliness means honoring and caring for those in the household of God, the church uh, family. Uh, when I was up in St. Peter's last weekend for their weekend, Andy Robertson was, was there, who used to work here. And Andy did a seminar on Bible teaching, and he said he learned a lot of things in Chalmers. The one thing he didn't learn was how to have headings in sermons he said. He would just have one word, and they'd all begin with the same letter. But that's just confusing. This is what he's saying. Godliness means honoring and caring for those in the household of God, the church family. And verses 1 and 2 function like a little bridge, if you like, between chapters 4 and 5. Uh, Paul, in chapter 4, has been speaking about godliness. Now he considers what it looks like in the household of God. Now, there are two areas in verses 3 to 25 he focuses on, honoring and caring for those in need, widows, and honoring and caring for the elders. But that, these two examples are set in the context, the two specific examples in verses 3 to 25, honoring and caring for those in need, the widows, honoring and caring for the elders. That's set in the context of honoring and caring for everyone in the household of God, verses 1 and 2. Let me read these two verses, and you'll see the general sweep of them. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Now, the reference to rebuking one another in the church family is with respect to godliness or ungodliness. Ungodliness needs to be addressed. Godliness needs to be prized, and ungodliness needs to be addressed. And Paul is saying, don't turn a blind eye to it. He's not saying you should ignore ungodliness. That couldn't be further from his mind. What he is uh, saying is the way that it is done or addressed matters within a church respecting people's age. So Paul, writing to Timothy as a younger man, says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. A better word than encourage would be urge or exhort. A young minister, a young elder, a young church member should be concerned for the godliness or ungodliness of those who are older, but should express that concern in a respectful way, as they would to a father. Likewise, with older women, those who are younger should express their concern in a respectful way, urging and exhorting them to godliness. And within the church family, younger people should treat one another as brothers and sisters. And in that context, a mutual concern for one another's godliness might be expressed differently as one would address a brother or sister differently from a father or mother or grandfather or grandmother. The reference at the end of verse 2 to purity, treat younger women as sisters in all purity, is most probably a comment to younger men, perhaps to younger elders like Timothy, to be godly with respect to sexual purity in their dealing with younger women in the church. Now, I think that's what's going on. And what is really important from these opening two verses is this, that godliness right through the church family matters a great deal. So across the church family, younger people should be urging and exhorting older people to godliness. What does that mean? It means saying, look, I, 
I need to be able to look up to you. I need to see you running the race that is the Christian life and finishing well. I'm not daft enough to think that when you're older, the battles go. I want to encourage you. I want to urge you. How many of you uh, younger people have ever urged or encouraged or said to an older person, look, I'm really praying for you as you grow older in the Christian life. Let me encourage you that they need your encouragement. And older people to younger, exhort them to your peers, treat them as brothers and sisters. Not to address godliness is far worse than addressing it by putting your foot in it. I saw a wonderful example a couple of weeks ago, not in the realm of godliness, but just in the realm of care. A couple in the church had had a very difficult uh, circumstances. And people in the church here turned up uh, well aware that all they were going to do is put their foot in it, which I don't think they did. But isn't it worth the risk of putting your foot in it? Isn't it worth the risk of saying to someone, look, how are you really as a Christian? I mean, let's have no conversations after church this morning saying, let's have no conversations about the snow. None. It'll be a mercy for us all. Why don't we have a conversation about godliness? About are we growing as Christians? Not in an introspective way, what's your battle this week been? Probably far too dark to admit. But just an awareness and a, a general consciousness of of, of the fact that we are here this morning to, to rub shoulders with one another and not to say, my, it's been a cold snap, or how are you fine? No, you're not. It, it's, to, it's to encourage each other, to encourage each other. It is unloving and uncaring to someone who is a brother in Jesus or a sister in Jesus to overlook something that needs addressing. Now, uh, two examples specifically. Godliness means honoring and caring for those in need, verses 3 to 16. Honoring and caring for those in need. Now, Paul's focus here is on a particular group in the church who are in need, widows. So verse 3, honor Widows who are truly widows. The word honor means to show respect and to reflect that in practical care. Honor widows who are truly widows. That's a surprising phrase, isn't it? Honor widows. Uh, love and care for widows. That's what you'd expect Paul to say, but he doesn't say that. He says honor widows who are truly widows. Uh, it's not honor widows, it's honor widows who are truly widows. What does he mean by that? He means by that from the rest of the teaching in this section and chapter 4 and indeed the whole letter, he means honor widows who are godly widows. I mean, there's another, there's a sting in the text that you don't expect that, do you? Honor widows who are godly widows. And godliness means honoring and caring for those in need, in this case widows, but the godliness of the widows matters. It's a striking statement. One might even say provocative. Surely the church is to care for everyone without discrimination. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Now, verses 4 to 8 and 16 make the point that the first place to care uh, is the widow's own family. Let me just uh, cement that home for you that Paul is saying, honor widows who are, who are godly widows. And the first place to look for that care is their own sort of nuclear family. Verses 4 to 8 and 16 make that point. If the widow has children or grandchildren, or if they have a family, I guess it means it is the family's responsibility first to care for the widow. It's not the church saying, look, it's their responsibility. We don't need to do anything. The church is saying, look, it's the family's responsibility. We don't want to usurp their responsibility, and we want to encourage that. And then if that doesn't happen, then we'll do something. Yeah. 
So verse 4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. I mean, they're great principles just for our culture, aren't they? Uh, the care of the elderly. The care of the elderly. The responsibility of children to care for their elderly parents. An issue then, an issue now. Verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So in situations where the widow is a family, it is the family's responsibility first to care for the widow. And the church, the local church, and we're no different from that, our responsibility is not to undermine or take the place of individual families and family life. Indeed, the church should be encouraging care within the family. And uh, as we read, Paul writes in very strong terms concerning the failure of a family to care for their family members in need, and in particular, elderly parents, whether widows uh, or not. And I guess uh, for those of us who have elderly parents, uh, as Christians, we need to lead the way in that. We need to really show examples of loving care for our elderly uh, relatives, widows or not. Now, that's the first place that the church should look for them to be cared for. So, in a, a church like uh, Chammers, Let's extend from widows just to people who are in need, people in the church family who are really in need, either physically or materially or whatever reason it is, people who are really in need. Drop a list, yeah? People who are really in need. And there are people on that list at every church. When you see who they are, you've got to, your questions are, are they, are they godly? That's there, and we'll come back to that. That's there. And the first place for help to encourage them as their own families. That's what it's saying. Now, between verses 4 and 8, which are concerned with the godliness of the widow's family, verses 5 to 8 are concerned with the godliness of the widow. Now, Paul makes this very clear. He doesn't, he doesn't kind of hint at this. He really lays it on thick. Yeah, she who is truly a widow, that is a godly widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. You see what Paul is saying to Timothy in the church family? Yes, if a widow has a family, they should be encouraged to care for her, but don't neglect that person's spiritual care. If they have a family, ask the family, encourage the person to... Uh, Seek care from them, but don't neglect her spiritual care. And what often happens in a church is that somebody becomes quite elderly. I don't mean here, God willing, I don't think it is happening here. Somebody becomes elderly, they disappear out of your, your, your kind of grasp. They are cared for by their family physically, materially, lovingly, but not spiritually. And that person no longer has the spiritual care. And in this context, Paul is speaking about these widows being cared for by their families. Now, I don't think that necessarily means within the church community in Ephesus, outside the church community, and uh, he exhorts them, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, continues in praying night and day, uh, command these things as well, so that they, me, the widows, be without reproach, the people who are in need. That emphasis on godliness for everyone in the church family and here the godliness of uh, widows. We meet this afternoon as a, a pastoral ministry group in the church and that, well, <laughs> everyone has lists. There will be names of people on our hearts that we care for who never come here and who are cared for lovingly by their families but not spiritually. That's our job. We need to find a way to do that. Now, when a widow's own family, we're moving on to verses 9 to 15, will not care for her, the church family needs to care or take on that responsibility. Or, or let me just extend the, the application. When someone is in need physically, 
uh, materially, uh, whatever way, within the church community, and you know who they are, and the family, there is no family, or the family will not do what they should do, then it is the church's responsibility. That's verses 9 to 15. What does Paul mean at the beginning of verse 9? Let a widow be enrolled. Probably a list of widows the church is responsible to care for. Um, If you draw up a list, nothing wrong with that. Um, Might not be allowed with data protection in about two months. But what happens when you draw up a list is you don't what? Forget. Lists mean you don't forget people, things. They're important. It's probably a list that was there in the church of people that the church needed to be responsible for. A pastoral list. Now, discernment needs to be exercised to who should go on the list. Verses 9 and 10, those who should be included. Verses 11 and 15, those who should not. So, who should be included? Verses 9 and 10, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. What he's saying there, and it's very strong in the text, is that the person who should be enrolled on that list is a godly widow, a godly woman. So on the pastoral care list of a church, the church needs to be concerned with a person's godliness. It's there again, isn't it? And it's slightly provocative all the time. Who should not be included, verses 11 to 15, refuse to enroll uh, younger widows for, their, uh, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, uh, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have a younger widow marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. Now, what do we make of all that? It's hard to be certain what's going on here. Uh, My take on these verses is uh, that a number of widows would have enrolled on the widow's list, perhaps encouraged by false teaching in the church uh, about asceticism. Roger was looking at that last week. The kind of ascetic view that you attain a higher spiritual state by abstinence. And, and it may well be in the context of the teaching in, in, in 1 Timothy that they had joined the widow's list and had made a pledge that they would never marry and perhaps that they would work for the church. And the false teaching in the church at Ephesus was encouraging uh, that view. Where do I get that from? Well, also the language in verse 12. Let me read to you the NIV translation of verse 12. It's better, I think. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. That's a better translation. They've made a pledge, probably, in the context of 1 Timothy and in Ephesus. A pledge never to marry. And they had broken that pledge because it was a stupid pledge. They'd broken it, and I suspect that, from what Paul is saying, a number had married unbelievers, and they'd become lazy, idlers, gossipers, busybodies. Now, just to kind of um, cut off any sense that Paul is having a particular uh, go at women here uh, for being idlers, lazy, and busybodies, he says exactly the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 3.11. Uh, to men, apart from turning up the volume a few notches. Now, it's difficult to work out exactly what's going on here, and I've given you my best uh, take on it. What is crystal clear, though, are the principles. Let me try and summarize what these are and draw out some wider applications. Number one, honoring and caring for those in need in the church family. It is a God-given responsibility for every church to care for those in need in the church family. And so we need to, and there are practical outcomes of this passage for us as a church, we need to know at any point of time in the church family those who are genuinely in need. So, for example, we need to know those in the church family who are financially in need. In a family, if someone is no longer able to pay their mortgage and is running into debt, we should know. 
not in an upfront way or not a list that is published, but just we should know the practical things. If someone has been bereaved, and say, for example, their husband or wife had not left clear administrative instructions, it might take a long time for a will to be settled, and they may have no access to money. Church family should help. Or someone who is poor. If someone comes into our church family and is genuinely interested and committed to the gospel, it's not a ratchet that you wait till they've signed on the dotted line and professed the Apostles' Creed and then you care for them, but you don't ignore that bit. You've got to run the two together. If somebody is in that situation in the church family, we should care for them. Now, Let's not fall into the trap of thinking in our middle-class Morningside community that will not happen in this church family. It is happening. It is there. You might think in a place like Charleston, where Andy is, the issues are, are, are more pressing, and in some ways they are. Andy is constantly, constantly promised funding for, for this, that, and the other, which is, is community-based care in Charleston. He always wants to bring that, but bring it with the gospel. It's actually easier to understand in that context. But don't fall into the trap of thinking it's not going on here. It is. And we pray that it does so more and more. Because all kinds of people need to come to faith. All kinds of people are welcome here. And uh, we need to discern those who are genuinely in need and you don't ever discern those who are genuinely in need if the church family is at a superficial non-family level. If your contact is only a Christmas card once a year, you know, the kind of distant second cousin twice removed that you don't actually like, yet if that's the level of contact, you're just not going to know. Which is why we emphasize godliness, which is why as we seek to grow, which is why we have small groups, which is why we have networks, which is why we know who's not there, because you all sit in the same seats. Apart from one family this morning who's moved from that side to that side. And you know who you are because your wife couldn't find you, because you always sit there. You need to go back there next week, so I know you're here. Now, in uh, particular cases, um, when the church is aware that there is no family or the family is unable or not willing to care for an individual, then the church needs to put social and financial structures in place to provide the necessary support. And uh, perhaps the church should set up a fund which is able to assist in situations of hardship. Perhaps the church should appoint a deacon uh, for such things. These are decisions that churches have made, and we may make in time. The important point seems to be that when a church family needs to help, it must be much more than loving words, but practical assistance and care, like shoveling snow, to use a topical example. I mean, that, that's what it means. Or searching across every shop for milk. That's what it means. And it's got to be intentional on our part because, you know, you know as well as I know, in our culture, if someone needs their snow shoveled, they're not going to phone you up and say, please come and shovel my snow. I'm just not going to do that. I wouldn't do it. You need to do it. You need to do it. Just stuff like that and much more serious stuff. Now, principle number two, showing compassion and exercising discernment. We need to show compassion to those in need, absolutely. But there needs to be discernment. We need to use, use the resources God has given us wisely. They are not unlimited. They are for people who are genuinely in need. And in particular, we are to exercise discernment and support those who are godly. That is all over what Paul writes. Give to those who are godly. Why? Well, what's behind all of this, I think it must be, is, is not a kind of give to your own, give to those in the club, because uh, anyone is welcome in the club. But make sure that the key, key thing remains the gospel. That's at the heart of it. 
The great need that anyone has is the gospel. And what you find in churches is that, is that the care is done well and the gospel is sidelined, or the gospel is done well and the care is sidelined. It's not a balance either. It's a tension. The gospel is the most important need that anyone has. But the care is there when people have physical needs too. And the third principle, concern for truth, godliness, and the reputation of the church for the sake of the gospel. Paul reveals a mixture of compassion and discernment, guided by a principal concern for the truth of God's Word and the application of that truth to the lives of believers. Paul regards the reputation of the church and the gospel as supremely important for its advance. So what is the reputation of Chammers in this community? What will it be? We're one anniversary, one year in. You will know we're here. Will it be that church really cares for its members, but it's a bit wacko in its message? It keeps banging on about Jesus. They'll love you, but they'll not let you away without that. That's what we want. That's what we want. Now, let's turn away from that to the second issue. And that, just let me say in relation to that's what we want, that that's what we, that's what we have. I think we do. But we, we don't have, we don't have the guard kind of coming down. And I don't mean that, that, that we turn our church family into kind of knowing everybody else's business, because you're not getting to know mine. But some of you need to. Some of you need to know a lot about me. Somebody needs to know about you, so that when you're in need, your family can help you. Now, godliness means honoring and caring for the elders. Here I am about to preach on the need to pay me a salary. Thankfully, Paul has nothing about uh, inflation, pay rises, or amounts. Godliness means honoring and caring for the elders. Uh, I was trying to work out this week, and why is that these two things go side by side? I don't know, but it's interesting to preach them side by side. Godliness means honoring and caring for the elders. Uh, point number one there on the sheet, you see, elders who rule well, godly elders who teach the truth should be honored. Verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. One of you made up a point, I think, in the church information morning is you don't know who the elders are on the basis that, well, a lot of you do, obviously, but a lot of you don't know that a year ago we were in another building. You can't make a discerning call as to whether the elders rule well and are considered of honor if you don't know who they are. You do know many of you who they are, but that'll happen when you'll see them up here more and more, leading and praying and reading. And God willing, you will see them because they are examples to you of godliness. Praying. Caring. Shoveling snow. Elders who rule well should be honored. Honor means respect as those who exercise authority in the church. Paul says it to a number of places in the New Testament. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. That's Hebrews. Why double honor? I think, I don't know, that must mean the elders in the local church are to be held in high regard. Uh, we ask you, brothers, this is Thessalonians, to respect those who labor among you and over you, Lord, and to esteem them very highly in love. You are asked to honor those elders very highly who rule well, not those who don't. You see, the logic is the same. It's the same discernment required that we saw with, 
widows. Honor those who are truly widows. Honor godly widows. Honor those who are truly elders. What does it mean for an elder to rule well and therefore to merit this respect? We'll just glance back to chapter 4, verse 11 and following. This was last week. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. An elder who rules well sets an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress, so that you may see our progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that my godliness, Roger's godliness, uh, David Vosges' godliness, Graham Gibbs' godliness, the elders in the church, and their devotion to holding fast to sound doctrine will save both themselves and their hearers? That's what it says. What it means is that these things are so important in a church that they are caught up in the very center and purpose of the church. Godly leadership matters. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself. That's why I wrote to our elders last night. Don't fall off the cliff when you hear this. Remember Paul, who wrote it before he wrote Romans 8, that wonderful chapter that God inspired him to write. What's just before Romans 8? Wretched mess that I am. You are jars of clay. That's what it means to rule well. And when you see that, you should honor that. Honor it. Elders who labor in preaching and teaching should be cared for financially. Verse 18, I think, develops verse 17 to say that elders who labor in preaching and teaching should be cared for financially. Let me read the two again. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, some suggest that Paul is speaking here about two kinds of elders, ruling elders and teaching elders. Now, we've seen in our studies that that can't be right because he'd be contradicting himself. All elders need to be able to teach. It's how the church is ruled. Some argue, and there is warrant in this, that especially there means namely those specifying that all elders are indeed teachers. My take on these verses, and I, I think I'm persuaded that this is, is what Paul is saying, is that while all elders need to be able to teach and exercise their authority through teaching, there are some who give more of their time to it or who are especially gifted in it. And uh, churches just get their heads around and say, well, that would be good if we just pay the person to do it all the time. That's what ministers are. Teaching elders. Teaching not in the fact that others don't teach, but laboring in teaching and preaching as their job. They do it for their job. People like Timothy, Titus, and Chalmers, people like me and Roger and Sam, elders set apart as pastor teachers or, or ministers. And for those who do it as their job, they are to be cared for. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves its wages. You shall not... I don't really think these metaphors are very fair, but you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. You need to feed the ox. That's what it means, I think. Don't stick something over its mouth so it can't feed when it's going round and round and round in circles. You've got to feed the minister or the elder who devotes themselves to teaching. Or don't restrain it. That could be what it means. Don't muzzle it and don't restrain them by not enabling them to do what God has gifted them to do. And then, of course, the laborer deserves his wages is more obvious. Now, the description of the elder set apart as pastor, teacher, or minister is hardly flattering, but spot on. They labor in preaching and teaching. It is hard work. They are like an ox which treads out the grain, and an ox which treads out the grain goes round and round in circles all of its life, not hopefully in their sermons, but in the relentlessness of the task. Week in, week out, another sermon. Sunday comes around like clockwork, tick-tock, and the laborer deserves 
his wages. Now, if you think that those of us who are uh, devoted to preaching in this church uh, go round and round in circles, and it sounds like a big hard graph from up here, then you need to stop paying us our wages and get somebody else. But you see that it's very real and visceral what Paul is writing. And then sobering, verses 19 to 21, charges of ungodliness against an elder should be handled carefully and very seriously. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of God, uh, presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudicing, doing nothing from partiality. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Why the caution? Because of how serious it is. If you admit a charge against an elder, if you admit a charge against me as an elder on ungodliness, and you need to do so if it's there and real, that's, Paul is not saying don't do it. What needs to happen if that charge is substantiated? As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. An elder who is guilty of serious, persistent ungodliness, which is not the same, elders listen up, to struggling with sin and temptation like everybody else. Somebody who persists in sin should be publicly rebuked in the church. Why? Nobody else is to be publicly rebuked because elders are to be examples to a congregation in godliness. And when they are not, they are to be publicly rebuked as an example. So if I commit some sin of ungodliness that is persistent, I should be dismissed from my job but I should appear here if I had a repentant heart and be publicly rebuked. That's what it says. And you know, God's Word works in practical ways. That inspires those of us in leadership to say to each other, what can I pray for you? Are you struggling? Are you battling in life? It's not a threat, this. It's just real. It happens all the time in Christian leadership. Don't look over a persistent sin in the life of a fellow leader, whoever they are. And then, of course, don't be too hasty to appointing elders. I mean, you're not going to be queuing up now, are you? <laughs> Which is why I think when you go back to early in the letter, he who desires a noble task, should be an elder. Some of you will be sitting there shaking in your boots like we all are as elders, and yet there's, there's an overwhelming sense, as I wrote to our elders last night, in my own heart, of a desire to do what I do. It's like Paul's constrained conviction to be a gospel preacher and a deep, deep consciousness that he had no credentials to do the job, burdened to proclaim the gospel, yet conscious that he is made of clay, brittle, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. That's the appointing of an elder because some people... Uh, the truest thing I was ever told in, in my training for ministry, which was up and down the training, one of the truest things I was ever told is an old minister kind of comes in in a sagely way and he says, the people who are all over you at the beginning, young man, will drift away and the people who are quietly there in the background will flourish. And it's true. It's true. Time proves discipleship. We cannot miss out. Verse 23, do not be hasty to laying on of hands, not take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Open brackets. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your infrequent... What's that all about? Is it because Timothy had tummy trouble because of the stress of the job, as many ministers and elders do? Well, they do quite possibly. Or is Paul just gently guarding against asceticism? He's just putting it in. Being pure does not mean abstinence. Let me just underscore that. And uh, that's probably what it means. We don't need to get into debates as to whether uh, Timothy was to apply the wine externally or internally. That's a load of nonsense. 
just asceticism probably going on. He, he just nicks it in and saying, look, so probably a dig against the false teachers there. So there we are, godly living in the household of God. Two main lines of teaching that run through the letter are godliness and the household of God. Now, how do we come to the Lord's table today? Normally, when we come to the Lord's table, we speak about the fact that Jesus Christ, when he died, imputed his righteousness to us. So his righteousness is ours to have because he bore the unrighteousness of our sin when he died. Yep, that's what we celebrate at communion. This is my body. This you do in remembrance of me. My righteousness is imputed to you. What I want us to do this morning when we come to the Lord's table is not just focus on imputed righteousness, the conferring of status, but the imparting of his righteousness. So when Jesus died, his righteousness comes into your life, your heart, by the Holy Spirit. And so all that we have been looking at this morning is not only possible for us, it's already happening. And it is happening in this church. But we need to let our guards down more. We need to be honest with each other. You need to know that your minister is really ever fine that he is a wretched, wretched man. And so are you. You need to know that. We need to be real. We need to know who's ill, needy, and care for them. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus, lives in you by his death. His righteousness has taken up residence in your heart. And so we have within us extraordinary capacity to be renowned in this community for love and care with that gospel, gospel age. Let's pray. Father, our time has rushed on today and there's much here to reflect on. Help us to come to the Lord's table now sincerely and honestly, remembering not only the, the, the imparting of righteousness, the, the imputing of righteousness to us, but the imparting of it, Christ in us, the Holy Spirit, we walk in Him. And the conversations we have after the service are not human conversations. They're conversations between brothers and sisters and the Lord, loving, real, Spirit-inspired, discerning, compassionate. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.